0: You're listening to Conversations with Shonda, a Minneapolis Foundation podcast that unpacks the community's grittiest, most vexing problems,
1: hosted by Shonda Smith Baker. So Malik, I really appreciate you joining Conversations with Shonda. Even though you are my child, the way that actually we got to this conversation is through many people that recommended that we have a conversation around V3, something that you've been working on, specifically a request to have you on. And so even one of our staff members, Josh Johnson, said, hey, I think you should have someone from V3. So I think it's quite a compliment I'm not even sure Josh knows that we are related, that those recommendations were coming in. Normally, they would be like, you should have your son on. And then there's like, hey, there's this guy I know that I think you should have. Because of the multiple uh, recommendations, uh, we wanted to bring you on. And I say that because I think it's important for you to know and others to know that your leadership is being seen and validated by many people in this community and I just appreciate you taking the time uh, this morning to be with me in this conversation.
0: I appreciate y'all for having me. Shout out to Josh. Uh, I'm not even sure that we met before, but appreciate all the recommendations and excited to talk with y'all. And you.
1: So Malik, can you say a little bit about who is Malik so that the listening audience can get a sense of you and what you've been up to? Yeah, I mean Malik is a, a son, a brother, uncle
0: believer in God. I was born and raised in North Minneapolis. So I'm a lifelong North Sider. I still reside in the North side. Currently I work in, uh, I call it sport business, V3 Sports, which is a nonprofit located in North Minneapolis. So I live, work, play in North Minneapolis. I come from a family that's always lived, worked, and played in North Minneapolis, uh, so generations. So I grew up as a a three-sport athlete. I played basketball, I ran track, and I played football uh, all the way through high school. Ended up getting a scholarship offer to the University of Iowa and signed there my senior year of high school. I went to the University of Iowa for about two and a half years. I transitioned out of there. I went to Western Michigan University and and finished there in 2018. Was a part of the 2016 13-0 team, MAC Champions. Um, And, you know, we did it big that year. Was the highest ranked group of five team uh, in college football that year. We played in the Cotton Bowl and um, in Jerry's World in, in Arlington, Texas against Wisconsin. You know, I had one more year after that and finished up graduated with a sport management degree, moved back to Minnesota. And to add to that, I think it's also very important for folks to come back to the neighborhoods that they grew up in to try to make them better places. Um, after we are fortunate enough to go on and learn and get exposed to so much um, mm-hmm. to bring that back to our communities.
1: When you talk about being from the north side, right, like it's so fraught with lots of opinions about what Northside is and what it produces. Like when you say it, you say it was such a sense of pride. Has that always been the case? Like, how do you how do you see the Northside?
0: Yeah, I got so much pride surrounding the Northside. It's it's allowed me to become who I am. And uh, when I think of the Northside, I think of uh, a family, I think about growing up, being outside with friends, running around uh, the, the Minneapolis parks, playing sports, building lifelong friendships, going to the Cub and seeing my cousins. And I really just think of it as a big family, you know, a community that has untapped potential. Um, And I think we'll see that in the next few years. So when I think of Northside, I am very prideful of it. Um, And that's because I, I see how it is, how it was and what it can be
1: it also has come with some hard moments, right? Like me knowing that you came up through sports and park board and uh, the police activities league, you know, I remember some of those young people that you were in sports with that have taken and taken on different tracks. And so what do you think could have been done differently or should be done differently for young people that are sort of on the margins?
0: Yeah, you know, I think I don't have the answer to that. I would just say, you know, from my experience, just growing up in the park system, you hit a certain age and you're not thought of anymore. You hit 14, you get to the high school age and high schools are expected to take you on versus what you've known your whole life, which is the park board systems. So for instance, if I was going to Fall Wheel Park my entire life, when I hit 14, because it is a small park, they might say you're not really welcome in here anymore because we got this other age group that we're focused on. And then when you do that and there isn't an alternative, you just go outside the parks. In Minneapolis, what you see is parks going against parks, which is neighborhoods against neighborhoods. So, you know, some people lack the guidance to transition from middle school to high school. And uh, and with that, you know, there's a lot of great players you know, I always say I was never the best player on any team that I played on, um, but I had different resources and exposure than most, which allowed me to excel and to become who I am. I really think just that, that middle school to high school age is so critical and that if we could figure that out, I think that is really one of the most proactive ways to uh, combat some of this community violence and to keep some of our young folks off of the streets. And right now, just thinking about um, the sport, the youth sports world right now is growing uh, rapidly and traveling, travel sports is taking off, which is taken away from our park systems um, on the sports side. And don't get me wrong, there is some programming for teens, but it's more like a come in for a team night here and there. It's not like everyday program.
1: I guess I've never thought about it that way. So what I'm taking from what you're saying is that you're sort of growing up in a small place where everyone sort of knows your name, your behavior, they're going to tell you to stop. There's a lot of consistency in those relationships. And then when that that network of support gets shifted, they basically don't know how to acclimate to the new way. There's nothing that helps with that
0: yeah there's no transition and then you also have to deal with the the high schools the choice is yours so now our kids are not necessarily going to their home schools and I'm a product of that my home school is North High School and I graduated from Cooper High School and you know there isn't the same support in these uh suburban schools as there is in the in the neighborhood schools and those are most likely the the people that know your family in those schools that you that you've grown up around and uh, have some respect for, and then you go to these suburban schools, and they, you know, they don't give you the same the same leeway. Uh, they don't talk to you the same, so you're you're more on a short leash. That you're already from the north side, so you kind of got a bad rep, in a way. They don't really expect much from our kids, and I'm not saying that for all, but that has been a thing. And I think that another thing about, you know, just just our our high schools, you know, to go to the choice is yours, you gotta fit into free and reduced lunch and you gotta be at risk and you gotta be underrepresented or under-resourced. So, you know, they just put our kids in so, so much boxes that if if they start to believe it, it's hard to break out of. It.
1: One of the things that I always say is, and I I have felt this, right? Folks know I'm from the north side. And, you know, I've said this before on the podcast that there would be times when people would be talking about the north side.
0: Mm.
1: And I'm from the North side and it wouldn't feel familiar to me. Right. Right. Or I'm like, dang, what do I need so I don't end up in these bad circumstances? I mean, I remember thinking that when I was a a kid. I actually remember when your brother turned 18 and we were we were actually in the kitchen. Which brother? Oh, your older one, Dominique. Uh, Okay. Dominique turned 18. And I remember you turning to him and saying, see, man, you thought you would never make it to 18. And it always stuck with me because I'm like, why would he ever think that he would not make it to 18? Yeah. And why would you say that to him? Like, what what was that?
0: You know, I I, I can't really remember what exactly was going through my mind, but I could just take my myself back to those times and being, uh, you know, start start to deal with gun violence um, on both ends for him from. You know, friends being the the victims and the suspects as young as 14 years old and just just kind of constantly being around the ruckus in a, in a sense. So, you know, I think just losing friends or, or peers consistently could could make you think that you could be next. Why could why what makes you different from them? I um, mean, y'all growing up in the same places, y'all go to the same places. y'all go to the same schools, play for the same sport teams. Like what what makes you different from, from these kids? So, you know, I really just think it came down to the environment that was that was happening uh back when we were in high school and then we lost our cousin to gun violence. And I think that was also uh, another thing. And that was around the same year he turned 18.
1: Yeah, I guess it was. It was exactly. Do you think that we're doing enough in our community to counter what you just said? No,
0: I don't. I don't at all. Since we're we're on a, uh, on a podcast with the Foundation in Philanthropy, I think that we need transformational gifts. We need infrastructure. Our community has forever been underinvested in as far as infrastructure. I talked about the park board. The buildings aren't big enough to have this wide range of kids. So 14 is cut off. And that's not like they want to do that. It's because they don't have the capacity within their building. We need infrastructure. We need places to go just be healthy. And that's where V3 comes in. That's what I do every day. And we're building a project, which is a community health and wellness center. Every community in Minnesota has a a workout area that can go. They got lifetimes, LA Fitness, Planet Fitness, whatever it may be. And what do we have? We do have some boutique style gyms, don't get me wrong, but we don't have somewhere where we can go swim, we can go play basketball, we can run around the track, we can lift weights, you know, we got access to therapy pools, and then we also have access to community resources. And I think those, you know, those transformational projects is something that we need to really invest in because we're just so underinvested in that area. And then when we have those projects, it allows us to impact past 14 years old. And then that's the proactive way to uh, to this community violence.
1: Is V3 a place where multi generational programmings? I mean, I remember being at the Y with you, right? Like it'd be like me, you, grandma, we would all be at the Y at the same time. And I guess we don't really have a lot of spaces where whole families can go. Is V3 going to be a place where whole families can be together around wellness?
0: Yeah, it's funny that you say that, that you break up the why, because the three started out as a a swim team, a triathlon team, and we swam out of the why on Broadway. And And that Y closed down to be a youth enrichment center. So there was no more grandmas and moms coming in to be a part of any programming, and it was more geared to the youth. Um, which now I think they have seniors in there. But the three kind of was born out of that. Yes, it is it is a multi-generational approach. We will have programming for adult seniors, uh, our youth, young adults, and uh, just a wide range of the family we are bringing in in, in the whole family. One of our big things is uh, combat and drama disparities. That's a generational thing, right? If a parent doesn't know how to swim, the child only has a 90 percent chance of learning to swim. So that's a generational thing. And then when you think about the Black community, you think about all the trauma that uh, our community has gone through from jumping off ships or getting acid thrown into the pools and the whites only pools. But, hey, we love swimming. We love the pool. We love to have fun in the pool. But, you know, we are able to always capitalize on that and have the most amount of fun because of this this generational challenge.
1: I want to touch on that because I've been watching the news and, and reading the paper, and they've been talking about the lifeguard shortage. Mm-hmm. Just the importance of, like, it's not just recreational, but it's life-saving. It's a necessity. So it's a necessity. Say, say more about why we should be thinking about this.
0: Yeah, it's, it's a necessity. I heard Jay-Z talk about him learning to swim. Jay-Z, at his big age, I think I'm sure he's 50 plus or close to it. He didn't know how to swim until he had Blue Ivy, his daughter. She was swimming one day, and he just couldn't fathom the thought of Blue Ivy drowning, and he couldn't do anything about it. We live in Minnesota, land of 10,000 lakes. People drown all the time just trying to keep up with their friends in in the lakes, in the pools. And it's really just something that you have to know for if you're a parent. Um, If you're a child out there trying to have fun, if you want to enjoy the lakes, if you want to enjoy the Minnesota summers. And there's just so much water around us that in Minnesota specifically, if you don't know how to swim and you get yourself into a drowning situation, you know, you might not come out of that. And that's why it's so important for us. And then in Minnesota, just like so many other disparities, the swimming disparities are are huge in Minnesota between black and brown folks and the white folks.
1: I, I know families that have lost kids to drowning. I, I hear that and I wanted to just reinforce that point. You also talked about being an athlete. You know, we've, we've often talked about this, especially for the young people. And I hear this narrative quite a bit when people are like, oh, I'm gonna play football. And people are like, but you gotta pay attention to your academics and don't forget about that because the odds of you making it are slim. And I've always been very challenged by that by that argument because I think you know why snatch a dream so young and but I want to know how you because I know I people would say it to you all the time when I was standing there which also you know was pretty nervy. Yeah.
0: <laughs> yeah, I mean you know people put their limitations on you all the time um, and that's not just in sports but uh, throughout life. Even though you're a big dreamer, you know they might not have been able to reach their dreams and they put that on you. Um, and people, parents do it. People, brothers and sisters, like the people, the people closest to the big dreamers uh, will kind of put down some of these people's big dreams just because of their lim- their limitations. But I think sports, regardless, you're gonna be in a better place after you play sports. Uh, you just learn so many life lessons. I play football, you know, I've always been able to work in teams, I've always been able to fight through adversity. I've been able to uh, to to shift gears quickly from one week to the next. Um, different game plans. Uh, you got to communicate. Got to be uh, a little bit of, uh, a little bit personable. Um, you know, you got to work hard. So I think at the end of the day, if you don't make it in sports, you still have those those life moments and life skills that transfer into the to the real world. You know, I think it is just from my experience from transitioning from college to to a professional career. You know, I didn't make it to the NFL. I didn't make it professionally. And I have so many teammates like me that struggle in that transition. Did you want to say more about that? I think it's difficult transitioning to life in general, but from sports, especially as a collegiate sport player, a Division One player. Most likely you've been playing this sport since you were young. Uh, for me, it was about eight years old. I played, I played football, played sports from eight until 22, 23. And I also was in, in school from five until 23. So um, all I knew was really sports and school. That transition of I'm not doing either one now is tough. And you really just got to take time to uh, understand who you are, what you want out of life and um, that, that took me a while to understand, but I kind of got some footing around it and I'm, I'm thriving now in, in the work that I'm doing in my personal life because I took that time to uh, really reflect on myself and to grow as a person um, through that transition.
1: We're sort of talking about what V3 would provide, but can you talk about the significance of what that means for the neighborhood and why you decided to join that team?
0: I started off by saying why I started. I wanted to join that team. I was in sports working for the Minnesota Twins and community relations. So I already had that community kind of background, but this allowed me to impact the community that I'm from every day that I live in and now I could work in. It's a project, a building that'll be here long past after I am gone. So it was something I couldn't pass up and there's a great team around it and then when you think about uh, the impacts, our communities, healthy people create healthy communities. So when we're able to provide space to be holistically healthy in all aspects of our lives, um, mentally and physically, uh, emotionally, when we have that opportunity, it allows our community to become more healthy. We're contributing to uh, you know, not only social transformation around health, but economic transformation, as will be a regional destination. We'll create hundreds of jobs um, through construction. We'll have about 300 to 500 construction jobs, working with Tri Construction on Broadway, uh, also working with LSE Architect, our lead architect, Keon. You know, he graduated from North High School and grew up on 11th and James. So this is a facility that's built and ran by our community and is these, uh product of this building will allow us to bring in some big events and outside dollars into our community to circulate around and create some stability around economics of our community. We'll break ground in um, the fall, fall 2022. And it'll be a year built for the first phase. So we're doing it in phases overall. It's a, a, a $60 million project. The first phase is $20 million, and that is uh, what we're really trying to get in the in the ground is the learn to swim pool. It's an instructional pool, it's a 25-yard pool. We're trying to get we're getting that in the ground. We're also getting in that workout areas that I, sp- I spoke a lot about. We'll have a cafe space, drop-in childcare. We'll have a hydrotherapy pool and then we'll have some community uh, event spaces in that first phase. And then the second phase is the is the bigger part where we'll have the Olympic pool, we'll have the four courts, some additional parking, and some additional retail spaces.
1: What kind of events do you see coming there? So there'll be
0: a wide range from athletics to career fairs to conventions to, uh you know, we're in, in, in talks with, you know, Minnesota sports and events. You know, we just had Uh, the women's final four. And we'll have four basketball courts at the V3 uh, center. And that is a direct connection to the North Minneapolis community and the women's final four. Uh, And that's just an example. You know, another example is our main pool was utilized to select the 2020 USA swim team. It's a Martha pool, one of the best in the world. And Minnesota is bidding on the next USA swim trials. And that's another connection point to the broader state. So we'll be able to host some 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 national kind of regional events from, from those career fairs, but also to AAU basketball tournaments, which now we don't really have many places in North Minneapolis to do that. And you know, as an AAU parent, we had to drive to Hopkins, we had to drive to Eden Prairie, Maple Grove, all over the place. St. Um, Michael, St. Cloud, yeah. St. Cloud, and this is this is every weekend, and we go out there and we spend money in their neighborhoods, in their communities, and then it circulates there. And now we'll have an opportunity for that to happen in our own community in North Minneapolis. And North Commons Park will also have some, some nice courts, so we'll be able to do some big things in, uh, in North Minneapolis collaboratively.
1: So your work in community and how you show up is actually extended beyond V3. I know you sit on a couple of boards and I'm really curious on how you, why you wanted to do that. I don't think we've ever talked about that and Mm -hmm. what the importance you see and the benefit of serving beyond where you're working, right? Like a lot of the people on this that have been on this podcast have used their platform and their leadership beyond where they're formally situated mm-hmm. to find other places to lead, and so I'm curious on on how you sort of landed on I want to do board service.
0: Yeah, so I sit on uh, the board at Appetite for Change, um as well as Raise the Bar, and I'm on a committee through the Minneapolis Foundation uh, Fund for Sacred Community. You know, I was in after I got done playing sports after I graduated. I ended up going back to school to get my master's. You know, I got my MBA and kind of concentrated on sport entertainment management. And that took up so much time. And so when I was done, I just had all this extra time. And I'm like, you know, just working a full-time job, that's, that's I mean, that's a lot of time, but I don't know, I just had extra time. So I'm like, what can I do to continue my growth in community, to, uh, to continue my growth as a person and professionally? I started getting opportunities to join boards because of where I sit in community. I think people are attracted to uh, my age, um, as being a, a younger voice in community uh, with a little a little bit of face value and social currency. So, um, you know, even though I had those opportunities, what really drove me to being a part of those is because it extends impact uh, for me, and it allows me to grow. And to see organizations from more of a, a high, a higher level and being outside of an organization versus being in it, but to also be able to utilize my influence and my experiences in more organizations than just the one I sit in every day, which is v 3 How was it raising your kids? You know, I tell people all the time, this is before I went back to school. I, you know, I would say, you know, I went to college before because... You didn't take the traditional route and you went to college after you had children. I'm not sure if your audience knows that, but they do now. You know, how was how was that for you? Full-time college student, full-time mother, and full-time.
1: Yeah, well, you know, it wasn't a, a crystal stare. <laughs> I could tell you that. I'ma start with a moment that I had, which was right around the time I think you had just committed to the University of Iowa. And I was in a program at the University of Michigan, Ann Arbor. I was in an executive leadership program. I think I told you this, but it was on campus. It was right after graduation. And there were a number of us that convened on that spot. And so we were in like a bus or a van or something riding through campus. And I remember being overwhelmed by emotion in that moment, like equally as proud of you as I was sort of sad for myself with a feeling of like, loss of having that experience of living full time and having sort of that experience of only being a student mm-hmm. and and um, envisioning what could have been. And so I've had a couple of moments like that. However, I also understand what I gained from the route that I took, right? I, you know, I would have benefited from listening to some people and doing the route without all the extra responsibilities and the weight of of making sure that I'm taking care of you all. Mm -hmm. But what I did learn was more about my grit. And I actually think that because I was parenting while going to school, it actually focused me in a different way Mm -hmm. um, because I knew what my vision was for sort of making sure that you weren't losing anything as a result of my decisions. Mm -hmm. What I didn't recognize in that moment were the people that were watching me do that Mm -hmm. and the number of other like single moms or whatever that were working around me that like I went I'm going to school now because I've watched you do it if you could do it I could do it yeah and um I think was beneficial you know I was at St. Cloud State and you know you were in classes with me so you and you and your brother and you know not having a sitter that night or whatever and going to professors like Yo, they're good boys. They're going to sit there. They're going to eat these little Cheerios, play with their trucks. They're going to talk to each other. They're going to be quiet. They'll be good. I need to be in class. In the rear view, it makes a different level of sense than it did when I was going through it. But there were lots of sleepless nights trying to figure it all out.
0: I bet that rubbed off on uh, us for sure. I remember being in college in my master's program and knowing that I couldn't get anything below a beat. I'm, I was nervous. I, I used to be nervous all the time. Like, oh, I can't get a seat. Uh, I can't even get a seat. But And the work would be so much. I would always think like, my mom did this for kids, like multiple kids. I could I could do this. I figured out. And I think that was a motivational factor for me um, all these years later. I got one more question for you. And that is, how is it seeing your son all the time? We see each other all the time at different events. I think it's to the point where I expect to see you at most like community events. So how is it from seeing me like as a a kid to seeing me in, in the same workspaces as you? Sometimes we end up in the same meetings, the same galas, all these different spaces.
1: I have two thoughts on that. So one is you've heard me say this to you and other people, like you're the same person you were when you were little. Right. Like you were like a five-year-old asking for people's business cards. And then they're like, Malik called me. And I'm like, Malik called you. And I'm like, Malik, stop taking people's business cards. And I'm like, well, what did he say to you? Well, he wants to know if you went to if I went to college and how much do I make? And was it hard? And like you've always been sort of that question asker and that networker, even when you were little. So to see something that I was actually trying to manage when you were little, To now see how that was just in you and how it's actually benefited you, it's been a good reflection point for me because I'm like, Lord have mercy, this kid is calling everybody, you know, like, Mm -hmm. how do I, how do I manage him? And then I think, you know, coming out of school, you know, at first I'd be like, Malik, you know, do you want to go to to this with me or Malik, do you want to roll here? Do you want to be my plus one? So now I show up and you're there. You've put in the work. And like I said, some people know we're related and some people don't. So I get a lot of feedback and I'm really proud of it. I think what I'm most proud about is you took a route that I may or may not have seen for you,
0: mm-hmm. right?
1: Like you have you have clarity and, and part of your clarity is sometimes I'm uncertain. I'm going to get some feedback from you, but I'm also going to be reflective on my own path. And so I'm just um, very proud of of you, and not only you, but the circle of, of young men that you've had around me through your sports and others that I think are just doing amazing things in the community. Appreciate that. So let's talk about your friends, right? Because all of you all um, have come from this neighborhood, and um, some of your friends have encountered and had less Maybe support. Some of them have had maybe more. I don't know, but I I know some of their stories. And did you guys make like commitments to each other? Like what, or did or is it just part of how you show up as friends? Like did you ever express it? Nah. So
0: back then, you know, we were we would get into things, but at the end of the day, what was important to us was sports, and I think we just related so much through sports and wanting to get better that. That stuck with us throughout our friendships and still still continues with us. Mm -hmm. So we would go out on the field in 100-degree weather, like how it was last week. We would go out, and if y'all don't know, it was 100 degrees a few days. Like We would be out there all day. Turf is hot. Cleats melting. And we would just go out there and grind. And um, I think just that, just challenging each other in that way, allowed us to challenge and compete not against each other, but with each other as we navigate through life to be the best, to be the best we can be as individuals and in our relationships.
1: And I think all of you all have college
0: degrees, yeah. Yeah. For the ones that, that want to get a college degree, we got them. And the ones that didn't get degrees are entrepreneurs. You know, one of my friends, Dave is in the Mall of America. He has a, a store in the Mall of America. He's a, Social entrepreneur for the love. Go check them out if you're in the Mall of America. And then I got another friend, L.J., who does jewelry. He creates jewelry, and you know he's doing his thing in that in that world. So if I mean if college was for us, uh, we went to college. Most of us played sports in college, and that was kind of our our entryway to um, secondary education. But then some of us, you know, try college and said, "Oh, that's that's not for me. I will. I want to work for myself, and and that's what they're doing and, and thriving in that.
1: The reason why I think it's important to tell that story again is like not just the the stories of who exists, lives, and thrives in North Minneapolis, but there's also a narrative around black men and and black men's success and and folks around your age, particularly, well, for a long time, right? Like the matriculation into college and what does it look like to be successful um, and how we look at it from a community perspective. Do you think it's too narrow? Like, do we feel like college degree is it or you're not successful? Like, do you think we're, we're narrowing in the way that we're approaching philanthropy in the conversation that's not supporting people living out full dreams?
0: Oh yeah, you know, college isn't the same thing as it was for possibly you, and um, what your mom and dad pushed, and a community was pushing before. There was, you know, different circumstances. The the recession, two thousand eight, changed that a little bit, where you could have a college degree and still can not get a job. Um, and you know, so I think that right now in this social media age and just there's so much creativity out there that you know you could you could find a way to make some money and do it in your way however you want to do it you could do it in you know the, the the best possible way that you know how and that doesn't always need a college degree uh I'm a believer in education however but I think that um it should come with a plan and I think when you when you talk about philanthropy I think you gotta be you gotta be open and innovative to to how you look at how you distribute funds, a lot of uh, a lot of philanthropy, a lot of foundations right now are going into the to the racial equity type lens. Hopefully, now that the foundations aren't locking people in to these boxes, like I talked about earlier, you gotta have you can't have more than this amount of money. You can't uh, you gotta be from this community to to get these funds, and um, you know I think philanthropy can do that. Um, but you got to be innovative in this in this work, I believe to to really capitalize um, on all of the the great things people are doing through uh, through their own businesses and through their own creativity, uh, minus the colleges.
1: So as you know maybe the the last couple of questions, I want to focus on philanthropy and development. So you're raising money for v three. That's your role, right? primarily? Yeah, I wear a lot of different hats. Uh, you know I, I wear a small team.
0: My, my technical role is a uh, community engagement, director of community engagement and partnerships. Um, and with that, you know, uh, fundraising is in that and development work. But, you know, I also work with the architects. I also work with consultants, different funding sources out there, uh, such as new market tax credits. I really wear multiple hats. And mm-hmm. development is a part of those.
1: You know, I'm constantly exploring what, what else we can do in philanthropy to support communities? And now you're on the development side, right? Like I was raising money differently when I was leading at Pillsbury United Communities in my various roles. This role of raising money and bringing investments into the neighborhood. What have you learned in those relationships? Like, what are you learning as a part of that?
0: I think people are scared to invest in North Minneapolis. I'm gonna just throw it out there. I think that people uh are hesitant in to invest in those those bigger gifts. I think the programming gifts are gonna come and it should continue to come. But when you start talking about those the infrastructure as I spoke about earlier, I think there's some some hesitancy around that. When we talk about programs and you know, there there's a lot of great programs in North Minneapolis. A lot of them. There's a there's a ton of great and I hope philanthropy and foundations continue to invest in those programs. But in the same breath, I do think that we need to start investing in infrastructure in our communities. And, and there's a stat out there just in you know how, if, if you're, so North Flute and North Minneapolis are a five minute walk from each other. North Loop had $1.2 billion invested in North Loop in commercial development. Over that same time, North Minneapolis had 13 million. I want to say 13 million, don't quote me on that, but it was around $13 million invested in commercial development. How can we thrive as a community with those types of disparities within five minutes from us? So when I think of, of North Minneapolis and philanthropy You know, I do think that people are, and the ones that are able, not all foundations are able to give those, you know, infrastructure gifts and those capital gifts. But I challenge philanthropy to look into those and to see how we can change this community socially and economically through infrastructure throughout generations.
1: The one thing is that you're sensing sort of the hesitation of investment infrastructure has to be part of you can't just think programmatically, you have to think about infrastructure programs will come and go.
0: Right. If you don't have
1: the infrastructure, like a whole building will go away the whole, the whole thing will go away if we're not making those levels of investment in earlier what I heard you say and then it's not keeping up with the full needs. Of the community and what what other lessons or learnings are you doing as you're raising money? And I think this translates to any urban community or any community defined as Black and Brown. Um, so I think it's a translatable point. Mm-hmm. But what other lessons are you learning?
0: You know, I think that in raising money, I will say foundations or uh, philanthropy they think about you know communities of color as a whole, or they try to be you know they try to you know, they think diversity and inclusion, right? And then they they want to see how you're affecting the Hmong community, the Somali community, the Black community, whatever, the white community. They want to see all of these different things in one place. But then when you say, oh, I'm about to do this for the Black community, it's not the same response. What do you mean? It's not the same response when you specifically single out the Black community. A lot of what we talk about at B3 is disparities between the Black community, as well as Black and brown communities. But when we say Black community, like African American, you know, we don't always get the same response, you know, of interest.
1: Okay, I'm processing what you're saying. I see it. So meaning that foundations are looking at inclusion. They want to put everybody under the same tent. Right. Every community has specific or nuanced needs. Right and instead of instead of targeting what a specific community needs they're trying to be inclusive instead of instead of targeted in their investments
0: exactly exactly
1: well on the philanthropy side i guess you know like there's so many people that are just out here trying to raise money you know i'm in informal philanthropy and so you know that's been a transition within itself right because i saw the limitations of it on one side down working in it. It's not like I don't see some of the limitations, but I'm certainly working very hard at the Minneapolis Foundation and beyond to to make it easier and more accessible for our communities broadly to to access resources and relationships. Sometimes it's not money right away. Sometimes it's a connection that helps you get to money. You know, part of what I know about you is you're sort of, I don't know if aggressive is the right way, but you're, you're intentional about being in relationship with people, knowing that those relationships transfer in a number of ways. And, you know, I think that it goes both ways. I think philanthropy acts as it does, but I also think community um, because they've been excluded from formal philanthropy, doesn't always know how to engage in it. I guess I'm trying to say is like, you know, when you started, you were probably uncomfortable going in and making the ask for money. Like, are you still uncomfortable? Like, are there other lessons that you can share for people that are maybe out here trying to start yeah. something, do something, be in a development role that that you think would be useful to either the philanthropy or to the the person raising money? Yeah. You know, when I, when I started out, I was a little bit nervous about
0: Make an ask because I've never done it. But now I got into the point where, you know, it's is it's much bigger than my nervousness. It's it's about our community and creating a, a safe place where we can um, be healthy. And when I think about that, that gives me the the motivation to go out and make ask, even though it might be uh, a little bit intimidating. When I say it, it's intimidating, because you just don't know the response that you'll get. And I'm not saying about yes or no. I'm talking about, you know, you might not get a follow-up. Uh, you might not not hear a reason why you didn't get a follow-up. Um, so I think it, it it makes you a little bit aware of the relationship when you make those ads. So, you know, to me, you know, I come into every, every meeting as myself. And I come in authentic, you know, I come in just in a a mindset of trying to actually build a a shared value relationship for the betterment of our community, which I assume that's why they're there as well.
1: Well, like, what's the best leadership advice that you have gotten? You know, I think probably
0: it is keeping the main thing the main thing. And that's something that I learned through football. There's so much going on in the world. There's so much that that needs to be done. There's so much that's going on in the community. Uh, you want to do this, you want to do that, but you really got to take care of home. You got to take care of what your main focus is and to keep that in mind, that that end goal to, to where you want to go and, um, and, and trust that process as a leader, knowing that people are counting on you to, to show up every day
1: and you know we always try to provide some level of of resource on the podcast is there a book that you've read or something that you watched or something that you go to that sort of inspires did inspire or does inspire you on a on a daily basis like is there people you follow is there a book
0: it's so much i follow so many people first of all uh, um instagram that's kind of how i use my instagram is i i, I follow you know, inspirational people that I look up to, you know, Nipsey Hussle was one that I really looked up to. Um, and I still look up to him. Why? He just, he just represent, he represent me. He's, I see myself in him. Um, you know, he's a, he's an entrepreneur. He was young, probably, I don't know, probably early 20s. And he was, he was a rapper, but he was telling people, don't buy that jewelry, invest that money, go buy some land. You know, he was just talking differently. He was speaking a different language than the normal, the normal rapper that that I would listen to at the time. And I think just that, and then just to follow, uh, follow him in his interviews and his career, you know, I think that that just I looked at at him as almost a mentor, but through YouTube, you know him, Master P, Jay Z, Dame Dash, you know people like that. But then, uh, you know, Rick Ross is also also one that I I look up to. As far as you know, people in the city, I I got into the sport business kind of kind of world from an event that you invited me to, and I heard Kevin Warren speak, and that inspired me to think about sports in a different way. And to think about the business of sport and not just the the, um, the on the field part of sports. So that's another person. Um, and then as far as books, you know, I'm just not getting into reading, but you know, I, I read uh, you know Seven Habits of Highly Effective People. Shout out Sean, he gave me that recommendation, and um, I think that's one that that really kind of developed my mindset and how I and how I move on a daily basis. Sean Jensen. Sean Jensen. Yeah. Shout out Sean.
1: Last question is going to be just sort of the importance of of mentorship, because it's one thing to sort of get inspiration. You talked about um, Instagram. You shared a book. You know, there's sort of informal coaching or mentorship. Like, how have you approached that? Oh, yeah. I
0: I have so many of them. I'm strategic about it at the same time because mentorship could go very wrong. How can it go wrong? Uh, You know, people could think that they're thinking they're helping you. Or they're doing the right thing, but they could be doing the total opposite. Like we talked about, people saying, "Oh, you should have a backup plan, right?" And that could start, that could that could alter you from ultimately reaching your full potential. So I think that it could go wrong in in, in different areas. That's an example. Uh, I'm strategic about my mentorships and who I bring into my life in that way. Because of that, and uh, for me, it's it's been so beneficial to. Had people that I know I could call on, whether it's I need a reference on the college application, whether I need help in community, whether I need to reach somebody that they know that I don't know, or just simply just talk about life um, in different different areas of life. So I think just, just having people in your corner that you know you can count on, that want the best for you, and you can also give to them as well and help them be the best for themselves. And you do that formally and informally. You have like a formal cadence of people or what? Yeah, so I have um, a mentor, Jen, and we speak monthly. We work in similar field in sport business. We catch up on the month, pretty much, and what's ahead. You know, our relationship goes beyond that. But when we meet during that that hour, we talk about more uh, professional. We have our time to talk about personal outside of that. just think that's important to just have somebody in the same as you, and she also serves as uh, you know a sponsor. She brings my name up in in rooms that I'm not in, you know, in in, in different organizations that she's a part of.
1: Malik, I appreciate you being in this uh, conversation with me. I feel like I'm, you know, I always love when we have these these moments because I feel like I learn a little bit more and get get more insight to how how you're approaching sort of your work. You ask me for advice sometimes, but <laughs> Um, I sort of laugh about it because you're also very, um, you gather a lot of information and, you know, I will show up and see you there. Someone will say, this is where I'm at. I'm like, yo, what was that about? Like, I still feel like on the mom's side, I still have to drag some information and detail out of you. Um, Matter of fact, you went to Liberia. So you go to Liberia, you're on a panel in Liberia. Yeah. And um, I ran into someone that you were at. And I'm like, I don't even know why he was there because <laughs> say why he was there. Like, why? Yeah. Why? You know, like, but you were in a panel in Liberia. Talk about because I think there's so many of us that have not been to Africa, right? Our motherland um, and what that meant to you to to be there and and who you went with.
0: Yeah, I started off by saying who I went with. I went with uh, Mrs. I call her auntie, auntie Wookiee Weah and her husband, Joe Weah, and also a colleague, Erica. You know, we went out there with Wookiee and Joe, who are Liberian, and they really showed us an authentic view of Liberia. It really wasn't like a touristy thing. You know, we went to, to experience the culture, to experience Liberia. And the thing about Liberia is just so unique. Is a very unique piece of history and unique piece of africa as it was the place where the free slaves from america landed in, landed back in africa so there was uh you know there was there was free slaves in america that said we' not stand in america we tired of this we're going back to africa and they settled in um in liberia and just that just knowing that history going to the to the place where they first touched down in Liberia, it just it just moves you. And um, it, it's, it's honestly hard to explain the feeling, but you can almost feel like your ancestors at that moment and throughout the time that I was there. And it's, you know, it's the, the people are great. Um, the food is amazing. They have a lot of great, you know, merchandise. And, um, you know, there's a lot of potential there in Liberia as a, as a country.
1: Yeah. Talk about your experience with the kids
0: there. Oh, the kids were amazing. So I, I visited two schools. One of the schools I met literally, she's a genius. She knows how to spell every word that you throw at her. She's like eight years old, you know, she's a star in Liberia. Everybody knows her. So I went to, it was a private school and it made me kind of more appreciate my education. Growing up, knowing that, you know, these kids, like, how did, you know, we asked the how did y'all get to school today? You know, some of them walked, some of them rode on the KK, which is like a, almost like a go kart or like a moped. And then some people got dropped off. You know, I'm thinking, you know, they got on the school bus, but that's not what, that's not how they got there. And then they're in there and just, we talk about infrastructure and buildings. Everybody knows how in Africa they got, windows, and that's it. There's no AC, they sitting in there hot, which I'm sure they're accustomed to a little bit, but just, just being in that environment, and then just hearing, hearing them learn, they were just so educated, so smart. Um, they speak English in Liberia, and most of West Africa, so uh, we were able to have a lot of great conversations with those kids. Um, and then I also went to another school, which is a, a football academy, a soccer academy, which they had came to Minnesota as a, as a team and played in Blaine at the National Sports Center. And uh, so we were able to have a lot of conversations about Minnesota, but these kids were just so dedicated to their academics and, um, and soccer. It was, it was amazing. The, the, the soccer team is, is coached by one of the best players on the national team. President of Liberia, was a national team player, a great soccer player that a lot of people uh, respect in that world. So it was just it was just awesome. They were uh, talkative. They were engaging. I had braids to all the girls at school. you got to have braids to the back. So we had the same hair. And, uh, you know, we talked about that a little bit. So I mean, it was just it was just so similar in ways that um, it, it felt like home outside of kind of really the infrastructure
1: (laughs) yeah you were hot it was hot hot. well um look I imagine that it was a life-changing um trip and um I'm glad you got to experience it It was one of those times where I'm like now he's inspired me one of the many times in which you and, and your siblings and others have inspired me that was certainly one to be able to see it I found out more on this podcast, so I'm grateful for this vehicle to learn a little bit more about what my child did in Africa. And uh, thank you for joining us in this this conversation, Malik.
0: Yeah, for sure. Before we go, just the listeners out there, anybody that's interested in learning more about V3 Sports and what we're doing in North Minneapolis, we got a website, it's v3sports.org. Uh, we're on Instagram at V Three Sports, and so uh, and we're on Facebook and LinkedIn at, at V Three Sports. So add me on LinkedIn, Malik Rucker, and yeah, look forward to connect. Thank you, Mom, for having me on this podcast. It was great to talk with you in this in this space. I'm sure we'll have have dinner later.
1: <laughs> I'm sure we will.
0: If you enjoy this show and want to learn more about what we do here at the Minneapolis Foundation, please visit us online at minneapolisfoundation.org. And of course, if you want to follow Shonda or the Minneapolis Foundation on Twitter or Instagram, that's Shonda S. Baker or MPLS Foundation. This is Sue pak Thanks for listening.